2: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Akira Englender. I'm talking today with Alexandra Kemmerer, one of the editors of the volume, Human Dignity in Context, published in 2018, which was edited by Professor Kemmerer, Professor Grimm and Mollers. Human dignity is a key term that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights placed at the center of legal discourse on a global level. In 1949, Germany incorporated the concept of human dignity in its basic law. This book provides a contextual analysis of human dignity, exploring its legal and political implication and reflecting curing debates on human dignity in multiple disciplinary fields. In our interview, Alexandra and myself speak about the definition, benefits and challenges of the term, about COVID-19 as a case study of how we can use human dignity to make decisions about the contradicts needs and wishes of communities and people during the pandemic. We speak about the debate around human dignity and technology and more. Alexandra Kemmerer is Senior Research Fellow and Academic Coordinator at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and international law in Berlin. Alexandra, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Hello.
2: Thank you. So, Alexandra, the um, volumes that you co edit focus on the term human dignity. And I wonder if we can start by having some definitions of what exactly human dignity is. Uh, I'm sure that they are maybe how scholars define this term. And I also want to add a second question. What should we do if whatever is the definition of human dignity is what we can assume that all human beings believe or share around human dignity and what do we do when some people will say I believe that not everyone has human dignity. Maybe only some gender has that, maybe some race has it. How should we negotiate and, and talk around these subjects?
0: Now, if we talk about human dignity, then we certainly start from the recognition that human beings and every human being possess a specific value, which is intrinsic to their humanity, and that they possess a worth, a certain worth, and are worthy of respect, just because they are human, they are human beings. But it's very hard and challenging to define what exactly the content of this con- that concept is. And scholars over millennia have had trouble to define that very concept. Human dignity is a concept that has been around for at least the last two millennia of Western history. Not including non-Western traditions that are also dignitarian traditions. Um, if we go to India, we 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 have that. Of course, we have it also um, in China and other parts of the world. But here and also in the book, we very much focus on Western traditions of human dignity. Um, and we find it in the traditions of the Stoa, of the uh, Renaissance humanists and Kant, and so on and so forth. And uh, also lawyers, of course, have tried to define that concept. And it turns out that it is much easier to see what human dignity is not and when it is violated. So, I mean, there is some consent that human dignity is that kind of inherent humanity, which you are worthy of just because you are human. And then, of course, you could derive it either from religious traditions or from Natural law. So humans are or have dignity because they are created in the likeness of God or just because they are human, as I said. Um, and then, of course, you could also start or try to define it um, from the violation of human dignity, uh, arguing that you know what it is or you know. what what it is when you see it violated. And when when human beings are degraded or tortured or humiliated, and that's a definition which has has become very important in the history of human rights. So in the discourse on the abolition of slavery, that has been an important, um, important element. Uh, And uh, certainly for the legalization of human dignity and human rights, that um, kind of assessment, when such violation happens, has been very much um, a core point. Scholars also sometimes um, highlight the communicative or personal or communitarian aspect of human dignity. So highlighting that it is a profoundly relational concept that humans are humans when they live with others, when they relate to their fellow human beings or when they relate to God, um, or also when they relate to fellow human beings because these fellow human beings are also created in likeness and picture of God. Um, For others, it's a concept which is still very much related to a kind of... um, dignitarian tradition based on merit. So you have dignity when uh, you have achieved something or when you are able to, um, to realize your autonomy, your creativity in certain ways. But for others and for many critics, it's also an empty concept or an unusual or, or um, not useful context, or Stephen Pinker has talked about the stupidity of dignity. So especially in uh, context in at the start of the third millennium where we had a lot of bioethical challenges when dignity was again very much discussed and also was um, used as a legal concept in many ways. Um, many scholars also were quite critical about the use of this concept. And because also, philosophers like Avishai Magalit, he, he says, well, there's human dignity is always in a trap between um, deification and kitsch. On the one hand side, it can be a kind of overstated um, religious concept where uh, human beings are sacralized because they are created in the likeness of God. On the other hand side, it can be a kitsch thing because Uh, It starts from an observation of suffering and uh, there's a risk of victimization that everyone feels victimized. For example, now in Corona times when many people have the feeling that they are, it's already a violation of their human dignity when they are restricted in, uh, in some way and can't live their life as they usually are free to do.
2: So it's so fascinating because in a way it's a term that we want to rely on, and on the other hand, it's such a, it sounds that so many people giving different interpretation that sometimes can become even contradict, right, to each other. Um, When we speak about achievements, when we speak about um, I have dignity because I was created in the image or likeness of the divine, it's very easy can become to, I was created in the, in the image or likeness of the divine. Not everyone was like that. So, and this is why other people will push, to, if I understand, to human dignities, you can interpret it because of the divine, but it's something that human beings as they are, have it always. And soon we will come to questions around what happened when there are contradictions. I wonder, it's, it feels for me, a sweet term. <laughs> you know, it's like, everyone is beautiful. It's true, but when people dating, they, they don't think that everyone is beautiful, right? I mean, we have preferences. Um, and there is something very interesting in, um, first that the, the, uh, um, we, we see the law or, or the, we see that in 1948, we have the declaration, right? of right. uh, human rights and um, it's, it's rely on human dignity. And also in Germany, it became the foundations, the foundation for the German law, if I understand from the book. Um, and I wonder why it was so important to have this de- declaration and to rely on human dignity. Why is the German law after the second world war and at the beginning of the Cold War, is this was a decision that to make um, uh, the people to rely on human dignity.
0: Human dignity, which is the the core and also the starting point of the German constitution, the Western German constitution, uh, the basic law, which uh, which entered into force in 1949, was a concept which, I think, was really of core importance to reorientate a society and and serve as a tool for self-reflection of a profoundly corroborated and compromised society um, after the catastrophe uh, of um, the Nazi regime. And the um, and the the crimes against humanity that that happened also of course uh, of the Shoah. Um, so the decision to put human dignity at the center of that constitutional document in the um, parliamentary council that drafted this document was certainly influenced by that extremely negative experience and by that experience of an abyss of what humans can do to each other and uh, and how they how they can um, also instrumentalize other human beings and deprive them of any kind of of dignity. Um, so I think the one the, the core consideration was really to, uh, create and to recreate a human society where it would be impossible to turn human beings just as uh, just into means and not see them as ends in themselves not as seeing them inviolable in the in the kantian sense and in the kantian um, tradition and uh, and also to to guarantee them basic rights which would would hinder a society to again uh, shift into a situation where you deprive people also of basic autonomy and basic basic freedoms. Um, And that concept is very much or has been influenced very much at the time by Kantian traditions, also by um, Christian personalist traditions, rooted in an understanding of human dignity um, as a profoundly relational uh, concept, where the human person is always bound back to God, but also and to the divine, but also to other human beings and the community of human beings, and can also only realize. His or her potential to the fullest if that communitarian aspect is uh, lived out and can be can be realized in a society. But it has also been um, profoundly influenced by an understanding of human dignity as inner freedom. And that's shown in a, a very um, very original and uh, Original meaning based on archival research, um, written article by Christoph gos in in our volume, um, where he shows that the debates in the Parliamentary Council were very much influenced by the experience of many members of that council themselves, because they had been censored or um, or uh, um, or robbed of their uh, of their positions in universities. Or had been, or had also spent time in prison and in concentration camps, and had um, and had suffered from uh, torture. So uh, he argues, and he shows also that their understanding of human dignity was very much an understanding of um, the inner freedom of every person, the freedom to make decisions, to define their own um, fate and also to realize that within, within society. Um, so this it's experience away- has, very, has very strong motivations to, to, um, to develop that concept.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So can we say mm-hmm. that in a way it was um, a law that wanted to educate the nation? I mean, I I, I will give you an example from Israel. When... The, when the state decided to create the law against sexual harassment, many men in Israel said, "So you now we cannot be romantic." And the feminist scholars who created this important this important law, they told them first, "You have a problem with the term romantic," and second, "Maybe for you, it's going to be now very hard." but from the moment that we have a law. So the idea is that the next generation, for them, this will be how they grow up. Because for them, it will be clear that if you behave in a certain way towards a woman um, or a man, you can be taken to the court. Is it the same? It's like Germany, the, 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 the scholars, the judges, the policy people in Germany, they said, we as a nation failed to behave with human dignity. Something broke around this Kant can, can can, uh, idea and the church idea. Therefore, let's create the foundations of our law around this broken term. So no one will be able to create a new Nazi regime. Do I understand it well?
0: Yes, I think you you uh, you are grasping um, the the core of the of the motivation. Certainly, um, I mean, there was this experience that Germany had a long uh, tradition of um, legal scholarship and and rule of law and so on and so forth. And in the Weimar Constitution, you had a catalog of fundamental rights, but everything failed, and it didn't it didn't help to avoid. Um, to avoid that catastrophic decline of uh, uh, of German society and the German the German legal system, um, so there was a there was also a strong trend towards natural law traditions in the 1940s and 50s. Which also a little bit derived from a kind of misunderstanding of positivist uh, traditions that were seen as as extremely relativist, which which they certainly are are not if they are correctly understood. But there was a trend to um, to kind of re engage with natural law traditions and also religious traditions, and that clearly stems from uh, from a felt need to. Um, to find strong points of orientation for society. And of course, also as a a signal to show that the state that was founded upon that basic law that constitution was worthy to re-enter the community of nations. Um, So as Jochen von Bernstorff has shown in his chapter in the edited volume, the drafting of the German basic law and in particular, um, this first article on human dignity uh, was very strongly connected to the debates that at the same time happened in New York in the drafting of the Universal Declaration. So the Universal Declaration um, was was signed in December 1948, and the German basic law was negotiated um, from autumn 48, until May 49. So that was exactly an overlap. Uh, And apparently, the Universal Declaration really gave also a kind of nudge and triggered um, even more this tendency to put dignity first, which was not so clear from the beginning of the consultations. But uh, then over time, it turned out that, um, that the majority of the members of the Parliamentary Council really wanted to have it uh, at the forefront of the catalogue, and also not just as a kind of part of the preamble or some introductory remark, but really to have to have it first and as an opening to the catalogue of fundamental rights, which then mm-hmm. follows. And it, it, um, if you if we go to the formulation for for a moment, there it says in Article One, Paragraph One human dignity shall be inviolable, to respect and protect it shall be the duty of all state authority. Then we have paragraph two, and there it says, the German people therefore acknowledge inviolable and inalienable human rights as the basis of every community of peace and justice in the world. So that second paragraph also um, underlines that connection to Uh, developments on the international level that happened at the same time and to this this reconnection to a world community. And then in the third paragraph, it says the following basic rights shall mind the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary as directly applicable law, which also is um, a sharp difference to the Weimar tradition where um, fundamental rights were seen merely as principles, but not as subjective rights that could be directly claimed in the courts so that shows that this um that, that dignity is really seen as the basis of fundamental and human rights in the constitutional um in this concept, the constitutional order but also as a principle that is then um, kind of made explicit in the specific rights that are following right of okay. the person right to yeah. right to uh, right to free movement to religion and so on and so forth
2: and then we come to COVID time and <laughs> oh. right, now I want to take that to we say in yeah. Hebrew to Tachles I want to see how it works so we are in the COVID time and we have people it's clear that there is um, a disease that if I have it I can hurt you and there is a responsibility around human dignities. Um, there are a group of people who say we are aware that we can hurt each other. However, our beliefs and our needs of life, because the risk is not like everyone is going to die. It's, you know, it's not an easy disease. But, you know, some people will say we want to take some risk in life. And the quality of life and living with a community, going to pray together as a community, um, sharing meals as a community. This is where our human dignity or our value and our, this is life for us. We believe in that. Other people will tell them, we, listen, you're not living with yourself only, because next to you, we are living. And we are afraid, and we really want all of you to be at home now. And if you go to the street, it's very important that you're going to cover, you know, and keep distance. And they say, you hurt my freedom. I want to be with my friend. I'm not going to be next to you. I'm just going to be next to my friends. I don't ask you to come to my synagogue, but I want to go to the synagogue. What do we do then? These are questions from everyday in Israel and in mm-hmm. New York, so it's real questions.
0: Well, these are questions in, in Germany too. I mean, we just Great. had this, this debate this week because yeah. the German the German government asked the Christian churches to uh, to go virtual with all the Easter services. We have Easter coming up um, the the week after after this weekend, uh, so. Um, So my question is how human dignity can help
2: us to think about the question. It's not that I I try to find answers, but I try to find how it can help us to think about that.
0: So first of all, I would say dignity is also a uh, a dangerous concept in that context, because uh, as some uh, wise people have said, it can also be used and abused as a conversation stopper. If everyone says, well, you are um, preventing me from going out or from doing sports or also from going to the synagogue or celebrating religious holidays, you're violating my human dignity. And that, of course, is a big thing to violate human dignity. Mm -hmm. So in the German legal order, human dignity is seen as an absolute context, a concept, so it cannot be balanced against other, uh, subjective uh, fundamental rights. So it's important to define what, in a certain context, in a specific context, human dignity is. Whether it's really touched upon, um, and and then of course um, it is also important to frame these conflicts in maybe more specific rights. So to say, well, what exactly is violated here? Is it your freedom of free movement? If you can't travel wherever you want, is it your freedom of association when you cannot uh, protest or or you cannot um, meet other people? Is it your freedom of religion when you are not free to to practice your religion as it is required uh, in your uh, religious tradition? Or as as you as you wish it. If you, if you are more free in your religious practice and thinking, um, and how how does that exactly collide with other rights? So how can we balance it and how can we negotiate it if your freedom of religion conflicts with some other person's um, health or uh, or well-being? And how does it conflict with certain interests of our society to not be overtaken by too many people in our hospitals and so on, our intensive care units. Um, And I think it would be very dangerous in these constellations to resort too easily to human dignity. Uh, and to see everything as a violation of, of human uh, human value. Of course, then it is important to see uh, where, uh, where exactly um, uh, thresholds are reached when the kind of intrinsic value or inherent worth of a human being is touched upon. And that could be, for example, if you have end-of-life situations where, for example, a, a person cannot be visited by family members, or where uh, someone is entirely deprived of um, religious assistance, for example, or, or can is, cannot see um, a, a rabbi or practice certain basic rituals that are just um, that are just of core relevance to, uh, to religion. Uh, so, so as you see, that's a very, uh, a very uh, gradual um, thing, which brings many, um, many aspects and colliding interests into the game. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's of course also the thing about human dignity. It's an, it's a very open concept. One could say it's a, it's vague, um, but that very vagueness also allows us to use it as a kind of playing field where we can negotiate um, the plurality of our societies and the colliding interests. And human dignity maybe as a conceptual frame then still reminds us that we are not just individuals, um, but that we are part of a broader society, that we are part of our national communities, our local communities, But also, and I mean, that's also an an important uh, challenge now and question now, when we think about um, uh, COVID-19, the question of what it means that we are belonging to a human society and a world society when it comes to vaccination or what some people label as vaccine uh, nationalism. To what extent that that, uh, common humanity, which is, which is the underlying idea behind the concept of human dignity, uh, also requires us and obliges us um, towards a certain degree of of uh, global solidarity, which then of course needs to be spelled out and negotiated in international law instruments and so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. So let's start. Let let's let's tell you a little uh, for a little bit more with. Um, question around technology and illness. Um, a few really um, fascinating chapters in, in the volume are dedicated to technology and, and human dignity. Um, can you, Alexandra, please uh, take an example and uh, lead us into these so important questions that I think as technology is improving, um, are going to become more and more relevant to our lives.
0: Yeah, so technology in, in that regard is uh, can be, for example, um, information technology. If we think about artificial intelligence or algorithms, or also um, data uh, data protection, data autonomy. So um, here, d- dignity and especially the the kind of autonomy feature that is inherent in the concept of human dignity namely the um, the ability to define and to decide freely about your your future and your fate um is very much of the at the core of recent debates so we think if we think about algorithms there you of course have the, the question to what extent uh, you as an individual are free to decide, when you go on Facebook, what information you see when you go uh, to any website, what advertisements you get, so it's controlled and uh, and you are limited in your ability to even make an informed decision about what you want to see or how it gets to you. Then, of course, uh, all kinds of information are collected about you. You are um you you are part of scoring mechanisms that are deciding uh, decisive for your life options, be it uh, your uh, your ability to uh, to obtain uh, to obtain credit or to um to get insurance and so on and so forth. So here the question is, um, when a point is reached, where also, an individual is um, made an object of these processes and not able to um, to decide as an autonomous subject about uh, vital um, ab- ab- about vital vital um, uh, vital uh, frameworks and limitations of uh, of your activity. Um, that would be that would be one example. Another example would of course be um, reproductive uh, technologies. For example, um, yeah, for example, when it comes to surrogate motherhood, that's an issue that's also discussed in the book by Tatjana Um, and maybe that's also interesting uh, for you because it's an example that is very differently dealt with in Israel and. And in Germany, um, in Germany, it's really anatomy and that's very much related to our uh, understanding and tradition of, uh, of human dignity because uh, surrogate motherhood is not so much seen as um, um, an infringement of the dignity of the child, but as an infringement of the dignity of the surrogate mother. Um, because she might be used only uh, as a means to obtain a certain uh, result uh, and not as, uh, as an end in herself. And that of course that of course the question is um, if, if we need to protect human beings from their own decisions and whether there are uh, certain activities that are so um, detrimental to their human dignity that we even need to deprive them of the opportunity to engage in that very activity. Just because there could be a risk that a person, for example, a surrogate mother is not motivated by her free will, but maybe by financial needs or by pressure from friends or whatever, Um, to uh, so so that that uh, that it needs the protection of human dignity to avoid that a person gets into that kind of um, uh, of compromised situation, and a little bit the same is it what we have when it comes to end of life situation, where of co- where also uh, in Germany the law is very restrictive when it comes to assisted suicide, uh, just because of that. Um, Also, that that very argumentation that there is a risk seen that a person is triggered into a situation where he or she is not entirely free to decide um, about her life. And then, of course, there's the question also from religious interlocutors whether there is even something such as a right to decide about the ending of, of your life. Whereas in other societies, like in in Switzerland, um, uh, you have a very different approach. And there are even uh, associations for assisting people with ending their life that are named Dignitas, Dignity. So here, Dignity is seen just as that um, ability to decide about your life until the very latest um, moment. So these are just just two examples.
2: So if I understand here, it's a great example to see the difference between um, a secular humanistic reading of human dignity to a religious um, um, reading of dignity, because even if in religion, all humans have dignity because all of them were created in the likeness of God, at the end of the day, humanity gets its dignity by the divine. And therefore, if you want to commit suicide, you hurt the source who gave you the your human dignity, so you're not allowed to do it. But if you go with a humanistic reading, then you are the source of your human dignity. And therefore, in a way, it can be your choice, right?
0: Um yeah, but, but maybe maybe too rough uh, a sketch. I mean it can. When when we go when we go back to uh to the surrogate mother pr- problematic for example you could also argue that if you if you see it more from a religious point of view or from a point of view where the interest of the community is very much put to the forefront and it's even an argument that Tatjana Hörnle makes when she refers to uh, biblical traditions. Um, like 100%. the story of Abraham where where sur- surrogate motherhood was a, a, biblical, mm-hmm. um, a, 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 a biblical was established as a kind of biblical mm-hmm. uh, tradition we think of Abraham and Hagar. um and uh, and there clearly the human dignity argument is made in favor of a, of a individualist individualistic understanding of the human being as an autonomous um, person. And that is then turned into a need to protect that very autonomy of the, the human individual Fascinating. Uh, in the context of maybe um, overarching interests of the community or of others that um,
2: thank yeah. you. So so last question. Um, Alexandra, when you when you think about the coming years, human dignity. Should we, should we give up because we can, it's so hard to define it? Or do you think that it's still very valuable? Maybe we need even to define it even more in order that we will be able to rely better on this term? Where, what do you feel needs to be done with the research and, and the use of this term?
0: Well, I think dignity will stay anyway. Um, at the conference we had, uh, one of the conferences we had uh, in discussing the contents of, of that book, um, Samantha Besson said dignity is here to stay, and that's certainly true. And we can see that dignity is still, I mean, even since 2011, when we had the first of these conferences, until now, we can see that really, there's really a proliferation of scholarship on dignity in law, but also in philosophy and and uh, theology and and so on. And it's become more and more uh, prominent also in jurisprudence, be it in the United States where we can see in Supreme Court jurisprudence, um, a tendency to rely on it, but also in other legal cultures in South Africa, of course, in Israel, it's also a very important, um, important term. Um, and also in uh, international law and international human rights law. So apparently there's really a need to rely on dignity and, and it fulfills a function that seems to be um, relevant in a legal concept, context, but also in an ethical and uh, philosophical context. And um there is, of course, a risk since uh, human dignity is always what we have called in our preface to the book, a gateway for philosophical or um, also religious arguments. That there's a certain risk that dignity can fall prey to cultural conflict and culture wars. But there's also a, an opportunity and even a promise that because of that open character, dignity can also serve as a tool to, or as a a field, as an area, as a notion where these conflicts can be negotiated in a human way. And we say here in our preface, I quote, the very notion of human dignity opens spaces to discuss and renegotiate, competing, conflicting, sometimes incommensurable but sometimes also overlapping legal, philosophical and theological concepts and ideas. It is indeed a notion inviting us to explore and better understand the internal tensions of liberal constitutionalisms and what could be more timely. Mm. And Um, since we've written that, it might have become even more. (laughs)
2: Exactly. exactly.
0: And that's my hope. And um, I, I very much hope that this book, which we edited Will serve towards that end.
2: It's it's such a good and important um, note. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for joining us as a New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much, Jakir. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you today.